Church family, he does keep on getting better. And I'm grateful for his faithfulness in my life and in the life of our church. I want to ask you a question. What comes to your mind when you think of the word spoiled? Hopefully not your children. Maybe not. I don't know. You can spoil a child. You can spoil a day. You know how sometimes our attitude can spoil a moment. Uh, obviously, we know what it's like to be disappointed if we want to find food, especially expensive food that somehow has been spoiled. We certainly don't want to eat it. I want you to think about this for, for just a second. So this is a brand new, unopened pair of undergarment. Oh, we can just say it. These are a pair of boxers, okay? Now, ladies, obviously, I know that this is not what it would interest you if you were shopping for personal undergarments. At least I hope it wouldn't. Uh, but these are brand new. They're brand new. To be honest with you, this is kind of how I like to find my underwear. New, you know? In fact, these were bought at a thrift store yesterday. <laughs> we would call these granny, oh, I'm not even going to say the second word. I have never understood the concept of not buying new underwear. Like most people in our life, uh, I've been at a point in my life early on when Lord and I first got married where we didn't have a lot. Uh, and, 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 and I understand the need and the interest sometimes. I, I like going through thrift stores and Goodwill stores, and I find some great deals. I learned a long time ago, poor people don't give clothes away. Rich people do. So you can find some nice clothes. But I'll be honest with you. I'll take my underwear new. You know what I mean? What in the world does this have to do with God's Word? You might be surprised. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 13. Jeremiah chapter 13. And I want to preach to you a message simply entitled, Pride Spoils. Pride Spoils. Not to keep you in suspense any longer, let's dive into a text about underwear. Chapter 13, Jeremiah Verse 1, thus says the Lord to me, Jeremiah says, this is what God said to me, go and buy a linen loincloth, that's the Old Testament for underwear, go and buy a linen loincloth and put it around your waist and do not dip it in water. In other words, don't do anything to get it dirty, don't do anything to start the rotting process, keep it dry. And do not dip it in water. So I bought a loincloth according to the word of the Lord, and I put it around my waist. Jeremiah did what he said. He went, he bought a brand new pair, he put them on. Verse 3, and the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the loincloth that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise, and go to the Euphrates. Now, there's some debate among scholars. Is this the literal Euphrates, which would have been several hundred miles from Jeremiah in Jerusalem? Or uh, some translations, like the uh, uh, New King James Version, and others translate Parath, which is a stream near Jeremiah's hometown that had a similar uh, word that sounded like the Euphrates. We, we don't know. There's some good debate either way. I, I tend to take my Bible literally unless the Bible interprets itself figuratively. But either way, Jeremiah is told, go on a journey and go to the river and hide it there in the cleft of the rock. Now, having many children, I have found underwear everywhere. I don't know about you. I remember when we moved this time last year to a new home, there was a day I was scourging, scurrying the house for my own boxer shorts, and I found them in the pantry. I don't know how that happened. Fortunately, those were the clean ones, but I found them in the pantry. But Jeremiah is told to do something with this linen loincloth that you would not normally do, even in antiquity. You wouldn't take it and find the cleft of a rock and shove it in near where there's water and dirt and erosion that can take place. And so verse 5 tells us, so I went and I hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. And after many days, the Lord said to me, arise, go to the Euphrates and take from there the loincloth that I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the 
Euphrates and dug and I took. So this loincloth was buried. No doubt the water had risen over it at times. And I took the loincloth from the place where I had hidden it. And behold, the loincloth was spoiled. And then there is this biblical phrase that may have been said to you when you were a teenager. It was good for nothing. Symbols, signs, and sayings fill biblical prophecy. Biblical prophets are trying to get a message across, and often props are used. This is not a modern-day phenomenon. We're not the first generation of humanity to use skits and drama, signs and symbols and props. And many times in the prophetic office, men like Jeremiah and Isaiah would use something literal in their life. And of course, Jesus did this as well. Jesus looked around him and used all kinds of analogies that the people would understand to illustrate his main point. But God tells Jeremiah to do something rather strange. He says, a linen loincloth, a note about the linen, linen would have been the finest loincloth you could buy, and it was primarily reserved for the priests to wear. The priestly vestments were important. And so this was not just an expensive undergarment. This was an undergarment intended for a holy person. And he was told to take it to a river, shove it in a crevice, bury it. We know he had to bury it because the Scripture says he had to dig it back up and leave it for many, many days. You could take any garment you have, throw it in the yard, and over one night you probably will be able to wash it with no problem. You certainly know that clothes that get stains and holes and tears end up being graded down to play clothes. And then in my barn I have a box of old T-shirts and old socks that I use to clean and to wash guns and metal things and anything I may need, I grab those old garments. They cycle all the way through. But I would never go into that box and try to dress my children from that box, nor would I dress myself. The clothes I put on this morning, like the clothes you put on, were clean and they were pressed and they were prepared today because I'm doing something I want to present myself well. I don't want my clothes to be a barrier. If I walked out here on the stage and I was unkempt and sloppily dressed and my clothes looked filthy and I had not prepared myself, my body, my clothes, you would think, I don't think this is important. And so we come to job interviews, to church, to school, to work with a certain level of expectation. So Jeremiah is told, take this fine garment and go shove it in a hole and then go get it. And what do you got? And Jeremiah holds up the linen loincloth and he said, it's spoiled, it's ruined, it's good for nothing. And then God says, Jeremiah, there's a reason why I told you to do this. Look what the Bible says, beginning in verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, even so, I will spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. For as the loincloth clings to the waist of man, there's no piece of clothing you're more intimate with than your underwear. If I have somebody, I'll go up to them, and they've got a nice new coat on. I might ask in jest, man, that's nice. Can I try that on? If a friend of mine buys a new pair of boots and I think they look good and I'm considering, hey, can I try those boots on? I'm not asking to try your boxers on. Just not going to happen. Just not going to happen. Might ask you for the name. Probably won't stare. I might look on Amazon to see if I could find a similar brand or color if you brag about them, but I'm not trying your boxers on. Not going to do it. You're never going to get a phone call from me where I say, hey, can I borrow some underwear? <laughs> just not, just not going to happen. And there's a reason why. That is an intimate piece of clothing. Well, God did something here. God said, you know how intimate it is for that linen to be right against the skin of your body? That's what I wanted the nation of Israel to be for me. Of all the clothes God could have adorned himself with, I wanted Israel to be my most intimate piece of clothing that clung to me. In fact, the word cling there is the same word used over in the book of Genesis where the Bible says, Adam, you shall leave your mother and father and cling unto your wife. That oneness, that clinging. 
You know, that's what you do when you're married. I often use what I read years ago in a book about it. You leave mom and dad. Some marriages are threatened because somebody doesn't cut the cord. You leave mom and dad. Mama can't be your best friend if you want to be a godly wife. Dad can't be your best buddy if you want to be a godly husband. You leave one nuclear family and you receive God's provision in your life, that husband or that wife, and then after you leave and receive, you cleave. You hang on. You latch in. You don't move to the left or to the right. And that was the word. And Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 11. For as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for, my, for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. And then the sad commentary, but they would not Listen, the rest of this chapter I'm going to unpack with you today, and we're going to go very quickly. I want to show you what pride spoils. From these very first 11 verses, we see that pride spoils our relationship with God. Pride spoils it. Judah had it. Israel had it. This is not a pagan country or people that have never heard of the Lord God. These are people that had seen God move. These are people that had been entered into a covenant with. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 19, God talks about what his intent was for Israel and that he will set you, now watch this, in praise and in fame and in honor above all nations that he has made. So all of God's creation brings God glory and praise and honor, whether or not they recognize him. But his plan for Israel was to say, of all the nations, you are going to be the one that I honored the most, that I esteemed the most, and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord. Remember, linen garment. Holy to the Lord your God as he promised. And what happened? Well, pride. Pride got in the way. In fact, we kind of get a hint of how this took place. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 of the opening few verses, he says, This evil people, and listen to what they did, who refused to hear my words, who stubbornly, you know, when you have pride, you act stubborn. Stubborn is the outward manifestation of the inward heart condition of pride. Whether you're watching online, sitting there in the comfort of your home, you're on a device, you're here with me live, listen, to act stubbornly before God is to show your hand. You and I are being prideful. Look what verse 10 says. He says, This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart, and have gone after other gods. Now, this must have stung the Lord because notice what he adds in the last phrase of verse 10. It's not that they just went after other gods by placing some false idol in the windowsill of the kitchen. It's not that they've gone after other gods by simply putting idols in and around for good luck. Look what he says they did. Last phrase, verse 10. Who have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them. By the way, what has God wanted from Israel? Same thing he wants from you. He wants you and I to serve him and to worship him. And when pride enters into our life, it ruins our relationship with God and we begin to serve and worship things that become idols. We're not going to turn back there, but way back in chapter 11, a few weeks ago when I began this series, we looked at the way we digress when pride enters our life. You don't wake up with pride and renounce faith. Not one of you listening to me preach this morning would renounce your faith. If you had renounced your faith, you wouldn't be here. If you had nothing to say good about the Lord God, if you had no desire to follow the God of heaven and to believe in the Bible that I hold in my hand, a copy I'm sure you have as well, you wouldn't be watching online. Nobody starts with idolatry. We begin to ignore what God says. And then after a while, that ignoring leads to ignorance. Of course, the root word of ignore, to not know, to disregard. And then we become indifferent doesn't move us anymore. And then once become, we become indifferent, and we talked about this back in chapter 11, then we disobey. We become insubordinate. I'm not going to submit anymore. I'm not moved anymore. And then 
whenever God no longer has a place on the throne of our lives, we always find something else to serve and worship. Make no bones about it. Listen, God has created every person in his image and thereby designed every person to worship and serve. Now, of course, we were originally designed to worship, serve, and know him. Why? Because he keeps on getting better. He keeps on getting better. But when we substitute God with other things in the world, we still worship. We still serve. We still bow at whatever idols that we believe will bring us fulfillment. And this is what has happened. Pride had ruined their relationship. They went from a brand new, crisp, clean, folded, creased pair of boxers to some goodwill granny panties. This is how God chose to describe. And interestingly, not only does he make an analogy or a comparison, rather, to the condition of the spoiled linen and Israel, he also says, and I am going to spoil your pride. In other words, God's not going to walk away. He's going to do something about it. I think it's hopeful that he doesn't say, I'm going to spoil you. You see, the whole point of biblical prophecy is that God's not giving up, that God continues to warn. I don't have a gospel to preach if God had chosen in Jeremiah's day to walk away from his people. Now, he's going to bring incredible, intense judgment, and many will not survive, and many who never turn will die in their sin, separated from God. But he continues to provide these prophetic words because if we grow prideful and we claim to know him, it should not surprise us to expect that he says, I'm going to deal with the thing that has become, come between your relationship with me. Always remember, pride ruins our relationship with God. But secondly, I told you we'd have to move quickly. Pride ruins God's relationship with us. See, the first 12 verses are really about what Israel had done. But then Jeremiah switches. We go from underwear to under the influence. You know what a DUI stands for, driving under the influence. Some states use DWI, driving wild impaired. We, we, ne we never have to add. We know what it's talking about. You don't say driving under the influence of alcohol. That's just implied or some foreign substance. And here's the idea. The idea is it is illegal to operate a very powerful, very heavy 2,000-pound piece of steel with four rubber tires that can go in excessive speeds while you are impaired through the introduction into your body of alcohol or some substance. It is illegal to drink and drive, to be intoxicated. And so when someone is pulled over and they are found to be above the legal alcohol, blood alcohol limit, they are written a ticket. They certainly can be arrested. And it is a DUI. So we know drunkenness creates chaos and confusion. Of course, this is why this sermon's not about alcohol, but this is one of the reasons why the Lord prohibits it. Nobody ever says, you know, I made the best decision of my life when I was drunk. Nobody ever says that. That's not the way it works. But drunkenness is also used as a symbol in biblical prophecy. Let me show you what I mean. Look what the Bible says, beginning in verse 12. Jeremiah switches from underwear to under the influence. He says, you shall speak to them this word. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. And then notice the quotation mark. Every jar shall be filled with wine. Okay, now, now wait a minute. What? That was a figure of speech. It was something people said when things were going good. We're going to have all we can drink. Our barns will be filled with grain. The party is going to be intense. It's a wonderful, optimistic outlook. Unfortunately, while pastors and preaching and churches ought to be places of joy where we celebrate the goodness of God, if we reduce the gospel to just motivational jargon and don't deal with pride, and sin and repentance, then we just pump ourselves up on optimism that leaves us empty deep down because it doesn't deal with what we need to allow the Lord to take out of our heart in order to follow him more. And in Israel's day, in Jeremiah's day rather, there was a lot of false 
puffed up optimism. We're God's people. Every wine jar will be filled. So Jeremiah, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, quotes God and God's saying, oh, you guys want to talk about every wine jar being filled? Well, let me turn that figure of speech on its head. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 12. Every jar shall be filled with wine and they shall say to you, do we not indeed know that every jar will be filled with wine? You hear the pride? Jeremiah, don't tell us that. We know we got all we can do. We got all we need. We have all the wine we can drink. Watch what happens. Then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I will fill with drunkenness all the inhabitants of this land. The kings who sat on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, he's not talking about literal drunkenness here. Let me make sure I explain myself. There are times when drunkenness is used as the best way to describe the chaos that's coming when judgment falls. In Psalm 60, we see a reference to this in verse 3, talking to God. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. The psalmist and Jeremiah are not talking about the wine, wine of a glass. They're talking about the wine of God's judgment. Now, let me show you how I know this is true. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 14. And I will dash them one against another. Fathers and sons together, declares the Lord. I will not pity or spare or have compassion. Notice the threefold. I will not pity. I will not spare. I will not have compassion that I should not destroy them. Remember that Jeremiah's role is to tell Israel you're on borrowed time and that Nebuchadnezzar is coming and the Babylonian army is going to lay siege to Israel and Jerusalem and going to destroy it. And that's going to happen. And on that day when it takes place, or rather that campaign, you see a lot of chaos. Basic society breaks down. If you've ever seen a war or a movie depicting war, you know that simple social structures break down. I mean, think about what our neighbors in Texas went through, not with a literal war against anybody, but when freezing temperatures falls, froze the state. Water lines were compromised. People had to boil their water. Folks froze to death. The basic structure of society cannot handle cataclysmic, chaotic events. And if it does, it reveals the weaknesses in infrastructure. Now, imagine Israel and Jerusalem being destroyed by a powerful army. People are going to run around. People are going to harm each other. There will be rioting. There will be violence. There will be great lamenting. So this is an indication to that, and this is what God is saying. When you allowed your life to be consumed with pride and you would not turn to me, not only did it change your relationship to me, you stopped following me, you stopped loving me, you stopped serving me, it changed my relationship to you. I stopped protecting and I started punishing. Now, of course, I recognize we could never make the human comparison between a parent and our Heavenly Father. But our Heavenly Father has identified Himself as our Heavenly Father. Think about the way your relationship changes when your children act prideful versus humble. When our children are humble and kind and gracious, we're quick to praise. We're motivated to protect. We long to provide. But if our children become prideful, boastful, insubordinate, if we love them, we drop the hammer. If we love them, our countenance changes. There's no joy. There's no laughter. I'm not going to compliment you while you disobey me. You will obey me or there will be consequences. Once you leave my home, you have the freedom to do what you want to do before the Lord. But while you're eating my food and sleeping in the bed that I have provided, and living in a home that we have given you. And while you are under our care, we are biblically, spiritually, and morally responsible. Not that you be perfect, but that we care deeply about the humility with which you live your life. And if you exhibit boastfulness and conceit, you put me or your mother in a position where we have to change how we relate to you. It does not mean we don't love you, but it means that that love will be very unpleasant as it has introduced 
to the stripping of your freedom or your backside. This is the way it happens. Well, if we know this, our Heavenly Father does it as well. And we see that it changes when pride spoils God's relationship with us. Third, pride spoils our reaching God. Something happens in verse 15. We're switching to another picture. Two men traveling in the mountains at night. Look what happens. Hear and give ear. Be not proud. If you're a Bible student and you love to underline, notice the word pride and proud and stubborn and humble keep coming up over and over in this passage. Hear and give ear. Be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. And then something happens. It's another one of those sayings. We've already gotten to one of the sayings. One of the sayings is, you're good for nothing. Here's a good saying. Give glory to the Lord. Have you ever heard somebody say, give God all the glory? And the church said, oh, come on, people. (laughs) Give God all the glory. And the church said, Amen. amen. Now, typically, I know in my mind, which doesn't run, the water doesn't run real deep, so it's usually pretty simple. In my mind, in my mind, when we say give God the glory, I immediately think of all the reasons I want to give him the glory. I want to praise him for the fact that he keeps on getting better. I want to thank him for his provision and his love and his forgiveness and his goodness. And even when I don't see what he's doing, even if I'm struggling to understand his will for my life, as I have been in my life many times, as I'm sure you have, He's already been faithful to me, and I know he doesn't change. And so even though I may not see what he's doing, and I may not understand where he's going, because he has not changed and he always has been faithful, as I've shared with you many, many times, I can build my life on the reality that he always will be faithful. And when it comes to that, man, I hope you want to testify. I hope at any point at the drop of a hat, whether you consider yourself someone who's a talker and you're articulate or you're a man of few words, I hope you can say, hey, here's four or five things I want to give God the glory for. But as is so often the case, Jeremiah turns it on its head. Do you know this is not a reference of praising God for something he's done? It's a reference to confession of what we have not done. Did you know the Bible teaches that to give God the glory means to confess our sin and pride before him? Notice what happens beginning in verse 15. Hear and give ear. Be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble. Joshua gives us a reference to this in Joshua chapter 7, verse 9. Joshua is talking to Achan, and he says, Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Do you see praise and confession? In other words, what does the enemy do? Watch this now. When I am prideful and I'm struggling with me, or something I want being in front of my relationship with God. When I have grown arrogant and conceited in my own flesh, I might say, hmm, I found myself here again. I don't, I don't have much to give glory to God about. Look how far I've come away from his will. And yet the Bible says, in that moment, the glory he wants is confession. Did you know you can be a sinner far from God? Not change anything about what you've done. You can't do that. But give glory to God simply by confessing you're a sinner far from God. When when Peter heals the blind man in John, in the book of John, uh, they're trying to question him. And, and, and they're saying, hey, what, what's going on here? Rather, Jesus heals the blind man. They're saying to this man, what, what's going on here? Who, who is this guy that's healed you? And they're questioning him. And he says, for the second time, they called this man who had been blind and said, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Basically, they're saying, confess the truth and tell us that Jesus is really a sinner. Now, he goes on to say, I can't tell you whether or not he's a sinner. I just met the guy. But I can tell you, I started the day blind, and now I see. But notice, 
Even in Jesus' enemies, they connected telling what they believed the truth was to giving glory to God. And what does truth-telling God bring? I'll tell you what it brings. Clarity. Look at the passage. Verse 15. Hear and give ear, be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness. You ever been traveling and got lost by yourself, hiking, hunting, being outside? Maybe as a child, you're going to go on the camp out in the back of the neighborhood, and then it gets dark and you cut the camp out short. Things change when it's dark. Stuff makes noises. It doesn't normally bother you. Silhouettes and shadows turn into monsters. Every parent in the room has been called to the bedroom to say, no, honey, there's not a monster under your bed. No, that's not someone tapping on your window trying to get in. Those are the water pipes because your mother turned the hot water on. That's not anything to be afraid of. We had to explain ourselves to children because when you turn the lights out, it gets dark as a pastor's son One of my jobs in those little churches my dad pastored was to go out and turn the furnace on on Saturday night so the church would be warm for Sunday morning. There is nothing more wonderful than a church filled with people and light. There's nothing scarier than an old church at night when it's dark. And I remember being a teenage boy, a ball player, a weightlifter, going out there, surprised I made it to the pulpit where I am today because I said many things negatively against my father for sending me out there to turn that furnace on. And I remember turning that furnace on at Aldridge First Baptist Church in Aldridge, Alabama, and I remember it sounded like a Tyrannosaurus Rex when that furnace kicked on. And when that thing kicked on, I couldn't help but get faster as I walked to the back basement door to get out of that church. I'll never forget one night my father decided to have a little fun with me. He snuck out to the corner of the church. And when I opened the door, there was a small street light that I was looking at because I could see that light coming in around the frame of the door. And I hit that door open, and I couldn't wait because it was one of those feelings that the faster I walked, the quicker the demons behind me were coming. And my father jumped out and went, huh! And my father's a small man. No, no, no Hortons are tall. Well, my brother's tall, but I told him we adopted him. But, but, but he's not a big man. And I grabbed him and threw him on the ground, ripped his shirt, and was about to punch him. And he said, it's me, it's me, it's me. He never scared me again. I love, I love my father. I'm, I'm not a violent person. A whole lot easier to be your friend than to be your enemy. But but it scared me so much because in the middle of the darkness, there's this little man that jumped out and went, (laughs) when you're traveling in the dark, the last thing you want is more darkness. In antiquity, it was very common for people to be traveling on foot and they would make camp for the night. You've seen this in many Westerns. We'll camp here for the night. And as soon as daybreak, you go because there are no interstates. There are no signs. There's no vehicles with headlights. There are no flashlights or headlamps. But the only thing worse would be for the darkness to keep coming, for it to just keep coming. When pride spoils our heart, the darkness gets thicker, and it's from God. Look what the Bible says, beginning in the same passage, chapter 13, verse 16. Give glory to God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains, and while you look for light, He turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. But if you will not listen, you hear him? If you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your what? Pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken Captive. So Jeremiah is seeing the unfolding of the darkness. On one hand, the darkness is spiritual blindness due to pride. And on the other hand, the darkness is the judgment that will look like Nebuchadnezzar's army that will be darkening the sky with massive amounts of cavalry and infantrymen. And they will take the people away. This is what happens. Listen to me. People always wonder, Pastor, how can I make good decisions with my life? We all want to make good decisions. Can I tell you that after watching people for many years, 
It's not just people who are intellectually superior that make great decisions. In fact, some of the worst decisions I've ever seen people make have been made by people who are incredibly intellectual, intelligent, well-educated. The track record, the common denominator, the common theme, the thread that weaves its way through people who consistently make good decisions is that they are not filled with pride. There is a humility and a submission to God's will that is the pattern of their life. And what we find is that when pride comes, darkness comes. But when humility comes, clarity comes. The world sees humility as weakness. But Jesus clarified that humility is not weakness, it's meekness. The difference between weakness and meekness is that someone is weak because they are not strong, but they are meek because they are strong and they choose to restrain their own desire to lead and step back and say, not my will, Lord, but your will be done. You may be facing a decision today. You may be dealing with the consequences of something that you've done in your life that is against God's will. You may be unpacking some judgment that God is dealing with you about, and you may want out of it, out from under it. Perhaps you're confused about something you're facing in relationship to a relationship that you're in with another human being, a father, a son, a daughter, a mother, an estranged uh, a spouse, or someone you work with, whenever you find yourself in those moments and it feels like there's not a lot of clarity, before you diagnose the situation and pray heaven down on everybody else, stop and say, Lord, is there any pride in me? Lord, humble my heart. Lord, deal with me because, Lord, I can pray for everyone in the situation and you can move in all of their lives you've only put me in charge of one heart, and it's mine. When we allow pride to spoil our relationship with God, it spoils our ability to reach God's will, to reach out and connect with him. Fourthly and quickly, pride spoils our reward from God. Pride spoils God's reward for us. Look what happens in verse 18. We're doing great. Say to the king and the queen mother. Who? Man, we've been all over the place in this chapter. You should have seen me when I started reading it on Monday. We go into underwear and wine and, and then we were, we're two travelers at night. Now we're the queen or the king and the queen mother. What is this a reference to? Well, I'll tell you in 2 Kings chapter 24, this is what the Bible says. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king. And he reigned three months, three months, three months. He wouldn't even get to make the speech about his first hundred days. Three months. He reigned three months. Now, now I'll tell you why. His mother's, his mother's name was Nehishta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. Now look at verse 12, four verses down, 2 Kings 34. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign. Three months in, and Nebuchadnezzar marches in and takes him. How do I know that happened? Well, because 2 Kings says it happened, but Jeremiah predicted it. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 18. Say to the king and the queen mother, take a lowly seat, for your beautiful crown has come down from your head. The cities of the Najab are shut up with none to open them. All Judah is taken into exile, wholly taken into exile. Lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north. Where is the flock that was given you? Your beautiful flocks, beautiful flocks, thrones, crowns. What are these? These are the reward and the riches of being God's people. Listen, if you want to rob yourself of God's best for your life, let pride enter in your heart. Let pride enter in your heart. I want to remind you of something in such a long book that we've been in since August. I know that every single week it's going to be about judgment. It's going to be about confession. It's going to be about repentance. But let me remind you of something. The whole reason God camps on this subject 
It's not because he ever entered into a relationship with Israel to give them judgment, to give them punishment, to break them, and to destroy them. It's just the opposite. He chose Israel to bless. He wanted to give them his very best. When we miss the best God has for us, it is not because God has taken a day off or he's angry, he's vindictive or manipulative. No, no, no. It is because we allow pride to spoil our relationship with him. And when that happens, we spoil God's reward for us. I believe in a sovereign God. I believe he is in complete and total control, and there is nothing that you have done or will do that will surprise him. But within his sovereign control, I also believe he has ordained opportunities and blessings that are available to us as long as we walk in the center of his will. But when we stray from his will, first, not in action or word, but in pride, we miss out on many of those blessings. And so we see this over and over again in Scripture, which leads to the fifth and final thing pride spoils. Pride spoils our repentance to God. The one thing that stands between any person and a right relationship with God is repentance. Of course, repentance for the person who's lost to come to Christ and repentance for those who are saved, like myself, like many of you, when we stray or stumble, repentance is an ongoing act before the Lord. And do you know the number one enemy of repentance in all of the Bible and in all of the world for all time? Pride. Look at verse 21 as we close this chapter. What will you say when they set as head over you those whom you yourself have taught to be friends to you. Jeremiah says, what you going to say when all these alliances with these pagan kings all of a sudden come back to bite you? Because now they don't just work with you. They hold power over you. Will not pangs take hold of you like those of a woman in labor? Look at verse 22. Notice the lack of self-awareness that pride creates. And if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? <laughs> I know in my life, when I find myself really hurting, there's a temptation at times to go, why is this happening to me? And after I get through that moment, that struggle, that season, it usually becomes pretty clear that no doubt all of us experience pain and persecution from without, meaning it comes no fault of our own. But I can tell you some of my greatest sorrow, some of my greatest moments of regret, some of the greatest times where the discipline of God has been heavy and thick <laughs> have not come from without. They've come because of something within. And usually, before I realize that, there's a lack of self-awareness. Can you imagine Jerusalem? We're, we're 13 chapters in. But it's crystal clear why all this is happening. And yet God said through Jeremiah, some folks are going to ask this question. They're going to say it again. Why have these things come upon me? Verse 22. And then God answers, it is for the greatness of your iniquity that your skirts are lifted up and you suffer violence. One of the most humiliating things a conquering king would do to the enemy is strip them naked. We know there are examples of all kinds of mistreatment all kinds of uh, sexual abuse that happen when a marauding king comes in and takes over the land. And God says, when you see your land stripped naked in bare shame, it's because of your own sin. And then here comes one of those sayings. You've heard this saying before. You may not have known it was in Jeremiah. Look what it says, verse 22. Can an Ethiopian change his skin? So in Jeremiah's day, of course, northern Africa was very much a part of the ancient world. Anybody that uses Christianity, by the way, to be a racist is, I'm sorry, they're an idiot. They're an idiot. Did you know that the first generation of Christians were Jewish? My Savior's Jewish. And do you know that the first 
massive movements of Christian churches took place in northern Africa. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch that got saved? I mean, it was hundreds of years before Christians had blonde hair and blue eyes. So anybody that defends Arianism or white supremacy through Christianity has no knowledge of what the Scripture clearly teaches. Now, I praise God that I have met people who love the Lord Jesus from every skin color, with every background. And heaven says every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And yet, in the ancient world, everybody knew what we're all trying to disagree with or move away from. Race exists. One of the most insensitive things you can run around saying is, well, I'm colorblind. The problem with that issue is is that God made us red and yellow, black and white. Our race and our culture bring glory and honor to him. Do not be ashamed of your gender. God picked it. You didn't. And do not be ashamed of your race. God picked it. You didn't. And the glory of God is seen in the diversity of all the ways in which humanity fills this earth. And Jeremiah says, as obvious as it is, that a person of dark skin cannot change the color of their skin. And then he goes to the animal kingdom. As obvious as it is, verse 23, a leopard cannot change his spots. So on one hand, whether you're white or black or whatever race you determine yourself to be, whatever you describe yourself, you can't change that. No more than an animal like a leopard can change the spots. Now here's the power punch. If you continue in pride long enough, you'll find it impossible to separate yourself from your sin. Sinful pride eventually makes it impossible for a person to separate themselves from their sin. I'll tell you the proof of that. Hell. Hell is a place where people no longer can ever be separated from the consequences of their sin. Now, because of God's grace, hell is a place no one has to go. In fact, that is the whole crux of salvation, that Christ in his love would separate me from my sin by taking those leopard spots on himself, by cleansing me of all unrighteousness. Now, in a believer's life, you may say, well, Pastor, I sure am glad I'm not going to hell. I'm born again. I'm saved. I hope I preach to many people today who have a strong sense of assurance that you are saved. If you don't know whether or not you're going to heaven, we'd like to speak with you today. We want you to know there's no magic formula. There are no magic words, but we don't want anybody to live in confusion. We cannot save you, nor can we create faith in your own heart. But the Bible clearly says, if you turn from your sin, confess Christ as your Lord. Don't give him lip service. Don't check a box. But if you truly lay your life down, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is what the Scriptures teach. Many of you would say, Pastor, I'm thankful to tell you today, I have that testimony in my life. I am a believer. I believe and I know on the authority of God's Word, not on my emotional state, that I'm going to heaven when I die. I share that with you. I knew when I woke up this morning and I know when I lay down tonight, if tomorrow doesn't come, I'm going to be with Jesus. Not because of DJ, but because of Jesus and what he did. Because of his blood that was shed for me. But as a believer... I can stray. I can stumble. And if I stray long enough, that sin doesn't just become something I've said, thought, or done. It begins to weave its way right back into my identity. This is what has happened with Israel. You started out as my people, and now no more than a leopard can change his spots. I can't see where you end and your sin begins. You've intermingled yourself because of pride. There's no way for you to turn from this according to this current judgment. And then what happens, and I'll close where it closes. He says, I will scatter you like chaff driven by the wind. I thought about the great Kansas song, Dust in the Wind. This is your lot, the portion I have measured out, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. If you want to... uh, Understand, every headline you read now, read that verse. 
People have forgotten God and trusted in lies. I myself will lift up your skirts over your face and your shame will be seen. I have seen your abominations, your adulterous and names, your lewd whorings on the hill and the field. Remember, God compared idolatry to adultery. How long, notice the phrase, how long will it be before you are made clean? And the chapter ends. So what do we do with pride? I want you to remember something. Pride spoils, but humility protects. The most prideful guy Jesus came in contact with in his inner circle was a guy named Peter. But by the end of his life as a seasoned old elder, you know what he wrote? He said these words, and I'll close with this verse. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself. We started with underwear. We're ending with humility. Clothe yourselves all of you, so not just the young men and women, all of you with humility toward one another. And then Peter quotes, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I love the clarification he adds in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Now, don't do it to be broken. Don't do it to be downtrodden, to push away. Listen, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. My day of complete and total healing and restoration is still coming. My day where I'll never know pain, sorrow, tears, or need again is still coming. And when we humble ourselves, it's not that we believe we've aligned our life with a God who wants to stomp on us for his glory. No, no, no. It's because we believe we have a God who has a greater life for us. And through the humility of submitting to him, we keep the poison of pride away from our hearts. Jesus becomes the center of it all.